Hi, I'm Frank. I don't like change. And I just saw a billboard for this new BJ's Wholesale Club talking about up to 25% off grocery store prices. Oh, really? What's wrong with paying full price, huh? No, sir. I would not join BJ's Wholesale Club. Let's agree to disagree, Frank. Say you do want to sign up now to get a $40 BJ's digital gift card. Join the new BJ's Wholesale Club, opening soon in Ross Township. Visit BJ's.com slash Ross Township or the BJ's Membership Center at the Block Northway. Offer valid for a limited time. Addiction is a disease that impacts all of us. Whether you, your neighbor, friend, or family member is struggling, everyone feels the pain of addiction. Recovery Centers of America, Monroeville, wants you to know that addiction treatment works and recovery is possible. Call 1-888-RECOVERY-NOW for help for yourself or a loved one. Recovery Centers of America have helped thousands of patients across the United States and here in Western Pennsylvania start a better, healthier way of life through their evidence-based inpatient and outpatient treatment programs. The caring team of physicians and clinicians at Recovery Centers of America see their patients as so much more than their addiction and are deeply committed to providing expert care with heart. Recovery Centers of America knows that every day in active addiction is a day in isolation, which is why they admit new patients 24-7 year-round. Don't wait. Make the call that can change everything. Call 1-888-RECOVERY now. Hey everyone, a quick note before this week's edition of the podcast. If you're a fan of this show, you're probably also a fan of Nuance. A little while back, I joked that I was going to offer merchandise for the podcast with the slogan, Nuanced AF. If you're not sure what AF means, you can just go quickly Google it. I was joking, but it turns out that people are really, really into nuance these days, and they want to let everyone know. So with that in mind, I am delighted to announce the arrival of official unspeakable podcast, Nuance AF Merchandise. Right now, you can choose from a coffee mug, a t-shirt, and a bright yellow baby onesie. Because let's face it, what's more nuanced than a baby? You can order by visiting the Nuance store on this show's website, theunspeakablepodcast.com. And what's more, if you join the show's Patreon page at the $10 a month level or higher, you'll get a free mug or $10 off the other items. Needless to say, this is an incredible opportunity. I've always dreamt of reaching the point in my career where I'd be selling merchandise. So thank you for helping make that possible. And with that, let's get to this week's interview. The real threat that cancel culture poses ultimately isn't to the Brett Stevenses or Megan Dobbs of the world who have an unorthodox opinion on X or Y, right? It's to the institutions which allow it to happen because they're becoming conformists, they're becoming boring, they're driving talent uh, out there, out the door. Um, and over the long term, I don't think that's that serves them uh, at all, um, even if it seems like a smart thing to do under the pressure of one controversy or, or, uh, or another. So long as we have a society in which there's a critical mass of believers in the First Amendment, what it stands for, the spirit it represents, uh, in both the public and private sphere, then cancel culture is is uh, ultimately self-annihilatory. Welcome to the Unspeakable Podcast. I'm your host, Megan Daum. My guest is New York Times opinion columnist, Brett Stevens. 
a conservative who has always been an outspoken critic of Donald Trump, Brett often manages to annoy his would-be allies on the right, while nonetheless consistently inflaming Times readers who are on the left. I wanted to talk with Brett not just about what it's like to make people angry on a regular basis, but what it's like to try to write with subtlety and complexity in a media culture that values simplicity and easy outrage. In this conversation, Brett and I compare notes on how column writing has changed over the last decade, and we parse some of his more controversial pieces, including columns he's written on climate change, Jewish intellectual achievement, and the sexual abuse allegations against filmmaker Woody Allen. We also discuss a recent column of his entitled, Woke Me When It's Over, a phrase that happened to have functioned as a sort of jokey working title of my last book in which he thinks I should have kept. Brett Stevens, welcome to the podcast. Good to be with you, Megan. Uh, I've been wanting to talk with you for a while, but now seems like the perfect time because a few weeks ago you wrote a column whose title was a phrase close to my heart, woke me when it's over. (laughs) So as you probably didn't know, this phrase was a, a running joke in my last book and functioned as a sort of working title while I was writing it. Um, and you do say at the end of the column that, uh, it was a friend of yours had, had uttered the phrase. So who was the friend and uh, where did he or she hear that phrase? Uh, It's a very close friend of mine who is an editor, uh, works in book publishing and uh, mainly mainly, uh, publishes um, coffee table books, cookbooks. Um, But she must have come across it somehow because after my column was published, she said, you know, it's not my phrase. It's someone else's phrase. And so I'm assuming that somehow that phrase had kind of gotten into circulation in the publishing world and I misattributed it to her. And she uh, instantly acknowledged that it wasn't originally hers. In fact, it's yours. So this is a good occasion to give you full oh, credit. Oh, well, I don't know if I, sh- if I should take full credit because part of the reason th- there was a big argument as to whether that was a wise thing to uh, title one's book. I had always just meant it as a sort of joke. I was never seriously going to give my book that title. Um, Why not? Man, well, it's, it's I think title. that, I, well, it is. It's a great title, but I feel like it's, it's asking for trouble. Uh, because woke, I mean, for starters, woke, it, it refers very specifically to sort of um, sensibility in the civil rights movement. It's not like something that traditionally referred to this sort of uh, new new progressivism, new social justice ideology, uh, sort of more, more generally. And I don't know, I just, I thought it would like make the book sound unserious. Like it was the kind of thing Laura Ingram would call a book if she was funnier. Like that's kind of yeah, but she sells lots of books. I know, I know. See, my agent wanted me to call it "woke me when it's over," and the publisher said, "No, that's asking for trouble. It's a bad idea." And I was sort Isn't of that on the their problem side. with publishing. Today? Well, then my book was called "The Problem with Everything." That, that <laughs> the problem with everything is this very problem. I don't know. I felt like it would be. Um, you know, it's funny because I had. Uh, I, I was. Before the book came out, I did a reading. I was like teaching at a writers' conference um, 
over the summer. And I read a section of the book that included that phrase. And a couple of the participants in the conference uh, actually like threatened to leave or have me kicked out or felt unsafe because of the phrase. And that wasn't an inducement to I run know. See, this is why this is, yeah, you're right. Well, okay, let's, we can. We I can, mean, in a sense, it, it, it captures the whole problem. You're using a phrase which is witty and clever, um, and people are taking histrionic, exaggerated offense to it, which kind of captures the whole problem in our culture today, right? I know, I know. Uh, well, so let's just start here. What does the word woke mean to you? What do you like about it? Other than, I'm assuming you like the, what I like, which is that it like has great consonants. It just like feels very good in the mouth um, to say, but is there, and it rhymes with a lot of stuff. Uh, but like, what do you like about it and what maybe bothers you or, or frustrates you about the word? And then we'll talk about the phenomenon more broadly. Well, I mean, I don't know if I'm qualified to discuss the genealogy of the word. Clearly it emerges from a particular uh, civil rights uh, context. I actually think somewhere I read that it goes back to perhaps the late sixties or early seventies, yeah. but it's, it's a, it has uh, connotations now, which I think are very readily identifiable, which is a, uh, has to do with kind of a quality of um, uh, virtue signaling on themes surrounding race, class, and gender um, that have very distinctive uh, tropes and sensitivities. Uh, and among those sensitivities is a very limited tolerance for expressions of opinion that don't fall within the four corners of its worldview. Um, and my opinions tend not to fall within those corners. Um, and so it, it connotes not just um, uh, a kind of uh, a sensibility, but an intolerance uh, that... Um, is playing out in the culture. And I think it's playing out in ways that are sort of uh, strikingly reminiscent of some of the literature that I used to read about totalitarian mindsets. So um, I, I guess I'm, I'm sounding a little bit like Justice John Paul Stevens on the subject of pornography. I know well, it when I see that's, it. Yeah, that's apt. Um, but you kind of know woke when you, when you hear it or encounter it. And it's it's not about um, greater tolerance or pluralism or um, uh, a, 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 a sensibility that's that's sensitive to the rights of your fellow citizens. If if that were the case, I'd be all for it. It's really just a kind of a, a narrow mindedness and a, a weapon uh, to castigate one's uh, political opponents as morally beyond the pale. Yeah. So, you know, uh, part of the reason I wanted to talk with you, I'm really interested in how this sort of milieu has affected your writing, your your sort of the way you go about thinking on the page as an opinion writer. I mean, we can sit here and talk about how this has affected the world and the culture and all of that, but I'm particularly interested in like how, if at all, it has changed the way you think about your column. So you started writing for the opinion page at the New York Times in 2017. Before mm -hmm. that, you were at the Wall Street Journal as a foreign affairs columnist, as well as an editor in other positions, I think. You won the Pulitzer Prize for commentary in 2013. Now, that feels to me like a significant year because I put it right before this big wave of 
morality-based discourse came upon us, right? So call-out culture, which is the precursor to cancel culture, like by my lights, that arrived around 2014. So I know you were writing mostly about foreign affairs, so you might not have tapped into the culture war stuff right away. But looking back on those columns, the ones that won the Pulitzer, do you think they would have been received the same way today? Would they have won the Pulitzer Prize? Uh, well, let's see. I mean, I won the Pulitzer for a smorgasbord of columns, but the, the one that I think was significant uh, would probably have um, destroyed my chances had, had I been up for it this year. It was called um, uh, Mormons, Muslims, and Liberals, I think, um, or Muslims, Mormons, and Liberals. Uh, I'd have to look look it up again. What you've written hundreds of columns, you, you, I know. you forget. Especially, exactly especially what, the headlines what you that you often don't write, right? So. But, you know, there I was making the point that in 2012, the allegation was that the uh, attack on our diplomatic facilities in Benghazi had been sparked by an anti-Muslim video. Um, and if you go back and look at it, it was um, uh, almost certainly not not the cause of it. The video itself hadn't been seen by anyone, hadn't really been, uh, <laughs> hadn't, didn't really exist in any, uh, uh, in any form. But the, uh, the, the administration, the Obama administration, uh, Hillary Clinton, um, uh, and I think Susan Rice, other senior members of the administration had kind of fallen over themselves denouncing the, the video as, as insensitive and, and an affront to, to Islam. And it happened that I had just gone to see with my wife um, the Book of Mormon, the uh, musical uh, on Broadway, for which uh, I had paid a, an exorbitant sum for tickets. And I was just commenting on the fact that, um, you know, why is it okay to uh, gratuitously insult Muslim, uh, Mormons and it is, you know, uh, almost heretical in the United States to that, that something could have insulted uh, sensibilities of, of Muslims. And I picked up on that, on that dissonance. Um, and I, I later heard through the grapevine that the Pulitzer Committee had liked that, that column in particular. I think these days it would have been a non-starter. I don't know if I could have gotten it published. Um, so uh, already it was, you know, let's put it this way. In 2012, I could write that column and things happened in the culture uh, that would make it unlikely for me to be able to write that column uh, uh, in the present. Although I try. Yeah. So, I mean, as you probably know, I was a Los Angeles Times opinion columnist from about 2005 to 2015 or 16 or so. And so, you know, the the experience I often have reading your column, it sort of goes like this, like I'll read it and I'll say, oh, I get what he's getting at. I, I, I get it. Uh, there's also no way he can get there in a, in 800 words or whatever that is, you know? <laughs> so uh, I, I want to know, and you often do get there, but I think that you really have a lot of faith in your reader to understand what you're saying. And I think that that's gotten harder over time, especially over the last few years. So with- that Oh yeah, sure. And, and, and that's, look, uh, there, there are two points here, I think that are worth making. When I was writing for the Wall Street Journal, I was writing for an audience that largely shared my sensibilities. And so there was a whole um, architecture or substructure of premises 
that um, I didn't really need to explain because my readers could could get it right. So I could I could move more directly to the points that I was trying to make uh, because most of my readers, like me, are were to the right of center, and um, I didn't have to kind of say, well, here's the architecture, here's here's what undergirds girds the thinking. So when I moved to the Times, it it was an adjustment in learning that. I mean, I, I, at some level I knew, but um, really learning that I had an audience that uh, not only uh, didn't share uh, those, those premises, but were often, you know, quite, quite hostile to them. And I kind of had to learn how to write, um, uh, write a column uh, again. And that's not a bad thing in that you want to, you want to reach the audience that's reading you. I mean, you, that, that's part of writing a column. So you know, when I moved to the Times, people, friends of mine on the right would say, you know, you're, you're pulling your punches. And I would say, well, no, I'm actually trying to make myself understood by, by readers, good faith readers who uh, aren't coming from the same place I am. And I want them to at least uh, rock the point, you know, even if they don't agree with it, to at least be able to say, okay, I get, I get what he's saying. And Okay, that's that's a valid point. I don't agree, or I do agree, whatever. But then there's a another issue, which is not really about Times readers. It's about the social media readership, which is all in bad faith. Um, not all, but largely in bad faith. Uh, I, I interject here a parenthetical, which is that as I'm speaking, I'm trying to be as careful as possible uh, because I know that. Uh, someone on uh, someone on social media who's who's uh, listening to what I'm saying is going to either misunderstand me or willfully misunderstand me and uh, take something out of context to make me look as stupid or <laughs> well, evil. I'll, as, I'll take that as, as, as a compliment that they would sit through this entire podcast just to. But but it's a real. No, I know. It's, I know. <laughs> I'll give I'll give you an example. Okay. Um, so I wrote a column about Woody Allen. I've written, I think, two columns about Woody Allen. Somewhat to my surprise, they have been among the most controversial columns I've written at the Times, which is sort of saying something, right? Really to your surprise? Uh, yeah, kind of. Um, uh, I, I, I somehow, at least certainly the first one. By the second time around, I kind of had a sense of what was coming. But at one point, I made the point um, in the first column that... Um, what I was trying to say was that there is one allegation of child molestation against Woody Allen, uh, a guy like Larry Nasser, the, the gymnastics uh, doctor, had hundreds of. Yeah, no, I actually have this uh, the column in front of me. You write, if Allen is in fact a pedophile, he appears to have acted on his evil fantasies exactly once. Compare that to Larry Nasser's two hundred and sixty-five identified victims. Yes. Yeah. Now, obviously. In a perfect world, I would have been more clear about explaining that uh, it's not that I'm excusing a single act of pedophilia. Any act of pedophilia is horrific and vile. To be sure, it's to that, be sure, yes. <laughs> it, no, but, but look, no, it's know. obviously what I'm trying to say is if he's a pedophile, how is it that it happened only once? Usually pedophiles are repeat offenders like Larry Nasser. So... I wrote that column over two years ago, and you know it still sort of circulates as evidence that I'm like a pedophile apologist. Um, 
And it's so kind of stupid and preposterous. And sure, if uh, I hadn't had deadline pressure, could I have couched that uh, sentence in a way that would have been more judicious or taken greater pains to, to explain the point? Yes, I would have. But do I really have to say no? You know, dear reader, I am against pedophilia in all oh, instances, right. period. Right. So, you know? so in opinion writing, we call that the to be sure paragraph, right? So the, the to be sure paragraph is the one where, you know, you, you start off the column, you you have your anecdote or your example, and then you make your point. And then, you know, about a third of the way down, you're supposed to say, hey, reader, to be sure, all the terrible things that you're uh, thinking about or all the arguments that you're coming up to counter my point, uh, you could make that point and I acknowledge it. And also, by the way, I'm not a, a pedophile, a climate change denier, a fill in the blank, fill in the blank. Now I'm going to continue uh, the piece. Now, I have noticed in the last uh, several years that the to be sure paragraph takes up like two thirds of the piece and then the piece starts. And well, that's, th- th- this is a real challenge yeah. <laughs> with, with columnizing in, in the present because you essentially have to spend, you don't have to, but if you fall into that line of thinking, uh, you're going to spend uh, half the column clearing your throat. Uh, and and that uh, is not the way I was trained to be a columnist. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, and I, you know, I'm, I'm ribbing you here, but I, I really, I relate to this. And part of the reason I really enjoy your column, even when I don't agree with you, is that you don't pander to the reductive uh, tendencies of readers. And, and you especially didn't pander in your opening column. The first column you ever wrote as a New York Times columnist was very famously about climate change. This was uh, April 28th of 2017. Um, the, the, the headline, again, I don't know if you write them or not. I suspect most uh, I almost always write them. Oh, headlines. you do? Okay. Well, that, yeah. that's, that's power, my friend. Um, you know, to me, you're, this column is making the point that um, exaggerating or, or fudging data about climate change or sort of um, ceding authority to activists over scientists does not help the cause because it's sort of foments public mistrust. It's a sort of crying wolf thing. I mean, I don't know if how good a job I just did of summing that up, but to yeah, me, well, that, that, that's about well, right. It's it's very clear. I mean, you you write in the piece, uh, you know, you you say climate change is real about seventeen hundred times. Okay, <laughs> okay, in like an eight hundred word piece, uh, and then you know you say. Um, Claiming total certainty about science traduces the spirit of science and creates openings for doubt whenever a climate claim proves wrong. None of this is to deny that climate change, I'm, parif- I'm skipping, none of this is to deny that climate change or the possible severity or the possible severity of its consequences, but ordinary citizens also have a right to be skeptical of an overweening scientism. They know, as all environmentalists should, that history is littered with the human wreckage of scientific errors married to political power. Now, that makes perfect sense to me, um, but you were nonetheless uh, immediately tarred right out of the gate as a climate change denier. Um, there, there was almost like it's it's a there was a willful misreading as I saw it. But uh, were you? Well, there's surprised? a great there's a great deal of that, and uh, it has it has taken me some time. Uh, and trial and error to um, start ignoring that and just choosing to do what I do. Um, uh, You you know, part of the problem is, uh, you know, at the journal, I was a popular columnist. Um, 
Uh, at the times, I'm a popular columnist in the sense that I'm so unpopular that I'm widely read. A horseshoe theory of popularity, yes. <laughs> um, which, which I think, from the perspective of you know the 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 folks who care about metrics, is is a is a matter of of indifference. But I honestly, at some level, I think that look, having a column is a great privilege. The purpose of a column is to speak as clearly as you can to your audience. Um, and uh, do so with uh, uh, with conviction, um, and uh, do so for as long as uh, they let you do it. So, the the danger in in columnizing is is to try to be constantly the popular columnist. I think if I if I had done that, if I'd gone down that road, uh, I would have trouble sleeping at night. I sleep soundly. There's also another important point um, that I think is worth mentioning here, which is that the reactions that are visible, uh, that is to say, on social media or uh, a Jack Schaefer column, I don't think represent the universe of New York Times opinion. Um, And I think there are a lot of, in fact, most normal people uh, that I know don't go and read a newspaper column and immediately tweet about it, pro or con. They get on with their lives. You know, they, they, I, I grew up, you know, in my family, we read the paper. Sometimes we talked about an item or two around the breakfast table and then we moved along. But there are, is a class of people that seems to have nothing better to do than to um, become uh, uh, infuriated about whatever it is that they read in my column or someone else's. And then to see if they can infuriate others and then satisfy themselves emotionally through uh, retweets. And my sense of that is that they're, that's, that's, um, uh, that's not a, a normal reader. Um, uh, most, I'm trying to write for adults, and adults don't have time to uh, get on Twitter and, and scream and yell about something. So what I, I, I mean, again, it's taken me some time to kind of internalize this, uh, uh, which is like, why should I care what um, dyspeptic people think at any given moment? But the problem is dyspeptic people have, um, have the microphone and there are colleagues and they are other media professionals. I mean, what do you do with that? I, I agree with what you're saying a hundred percent. It's, you know, it's sort of like, well, if you want to come to the adults but, table, come on over, but. Right. And, and here's, here's the real problem, which is that the people who rule institutions should know if they don't, that um, the audience that matters is not the audience that's on Twitter. Um, the audience that matters is uh, more intelligent, more steady, and uh, looks at uh, at journalism as a source of information or uh, provocation or whatever, um, not as an opportunity to kind of uh, reflect their own obsessions. And and so you know what I really worry about is is that. So many cultural institutions that matter in this country and that are supposed to be the gatekeepers of, you know, what I, in, in the broadest sense of the word, liberal, tolerant uh, culture, um, are folding in the face of a relatively small number of people who are loud and agenda driven. And, you know, I was just, I just had lunch just before 
this conversation, Megan, with a um, with someone who's in the art world, and this is happening all over the art world, and it's 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 having really deleterious effects on the lives of artists who are you know afraid of putting the foot wrong, or curators who you know are are terrified that uh, someone will object to the racial composition of uh, an art exhibit. Uh, they show. Um, and so it's creating a culture of both bullying and timidity. I think that's really bad for many reasons. But one of the reasons it's bad is that it's a wide open door for the Donald Trumps of the world to basically say F you to all of that. Um, and I'm not for that either. Yeah, actually, in the aforementioned Woke Me When It's Over column, you cite a, a really good example. You talk about how in this summer of 2008, the New Yorker had run the the cover art was that uh, it was the illustration of Barack Obama and Michelle Obama giving each other the fist bump. So there had been, the, you know, the, the terrorist fist jab. I can't, was it somebody like on Fox or some like Rush Limbaugh figure? I think it was Rush Limbaugh who referred to the fer- terrorist fist jab um, with, with Obama. It was, a, you know, d- dissing Obama. So in that uh, illustration, he's dressed in like Middle Eastern garb. She has a machine gun. Uh, there's a, a portrait of Osama bin Laden. It was a really controversial cover even for the time. But as you point out, David Remnick, who's the editor of The New Yorker, defended uh, defended the artwork, said it was satirical um, and really stood by it. Now, fast forward to what this was a few years ago. You have The New Yorker Festival. You have David Remnick um, about to interview Steve Bannon on stage, thinking that he was going to be the one to <laughs> finally, finally uh, get Steve Bannon to uh, hang himself, I guess. And the rank and file of the New Yorker protested and and said that they didn't want to platform Steve Bannon. That this was wrong. This was morally uh, the incorrect move. That it made them feel unsafe, et cetera, et cetera. And Remnick uh, Remnick canceled Bannon. And, you know, that's just what like over, a, you know, all what a difference 10 years or so makes. So I wonder if you. Well, look, I mean, uh, Rednick, uh, that I, I thought that cover of The New Yorker was brilliant. It was obviously satire. The New Yorker is read presumably by people who get satire and appreciate satire. Um, the criticism of it from the right was pure bad faith and everyone, you know, with half a brain uh, knew it. But the truth is that uh, Rednick if he had run that cover today, uh, for any reason, uh, would have been fired or would have been disciplined or it would have caused a huge controversy. Um, And I think that's a sign of deterioration of the culture because part of the liberal culture is is the opportunity for humor, right? And irony and all of these things that uh, um, ought to exist out, uh, uh, out of the open. I had in, in connection to some of the Dr. Seuss stuff, um, I had uh, a prominent um, leader from the Arab world with whom I'm friendly write me out of the blue and say, what's the point of all of this freedom you have in the United States if you're constantly censoring yourselves? Um, I thought it was, it was a kind of an interesting, uh, uh, an interesting comment. Um, but, you know, it's frightening to think that in 2007, Vanity Fair... Uh, published a piece by Christopher Hitchens called Why Women Aren't Funny. 
Okay, now... Which I made the mistake of trying to teach to some graduate students, and I think several of them had to go to the emergency room after the class, but yeah. You know, I, I, had, I had considered teaching it uh, to a seminar I, I gave last year, and then I thought, ah, that's probably not smart. Um, uh, but look, I happen to think tons of women are funny, okay? It was just sheer kind of bravura provocation by... Uh, Christopher Hitchens, and then a bunch of funny women wrote back, and and it was it was an entertainment, right? Um, uh, that's that's gone these days, and and I'm not quite sure if the world is a better place uh, by by virtue of the fact that um, uh, Christopher Hitchens uh, rest his soul. Um, I wouldn't say God rest his soul, but you know, rest his soul um, uh, would be. Uh, as George Packer pointed out, his career would be impossible these days. Everything would be sort of mealy-mouthed and couched in to-be-sure paragraphs. And by the way, I hate the expression to be sure. Uh, I think it's just uh, such a, so frequently a cop-out to the kind of vigorous thinking that is ought to be good for democracy. The reason I mentioned Remnick, though, it's not to pile on him. I mean, he's obviously a brilliant editor, but why is it that you think that he and so many other institutional leaders won't just stand up? I mean, from from a distance, it looks like, well, how, how hard could this be? All of these university presidents, probably behind closed doors, agree that what's going on with this, you know, with, with student censoring and deplatforming speakers and everything we hear about, I'm sure they're all rolling their eyes at it, can't stand it. Why aren't these you know, directors of museums, directors of ideas, festivals and film festivals and editors of magazines. Why don't they just like man up? Sorry to use that phrase, man and woman. Yeah, I'm, I'm, a, little, I'm a little triggered by that phrase, Megan. Um, I don't know if I can continue okay. this, well, this conversation. Sorry, it's been nice okay. uh, speaking to you. Um, great question. Uh, I, I don't know. I wrote a column after the Bannon cancellation. Um, and I said, I think it was titled "Now Twitter Edits the New Yorker." Uh, Twitter edits a lot of things these days. Um, Great and, job, Adam. Look, I, th I think it's. I'm not sure there's a single answer. Uh, one answer, no doubt, is that we've moved from ad-based models to subscriber-based models, um, where the feelings of vocal vocal. Uh, uh, Minorities, I don't mean racial minorities, I mean just minorities of readers um, uh, carry inordinate weight uh, with not just with editors, but with publishers. Um, and, and obviously, all of that magnified through uh, social media. Um, but I think also there is, um, uh, it, it turns out that people only like to be courageous when it's popular. You know, it's easy to stand up to Trump, right? It was easy to to denounce Donald Trump as I thought he was as a um, you know a singular threat to uh, you know liberal democratic uh, governance who you know really had to be uh, opposed. Um, and it didn't take you know, I mean, I, I paid a certain price for it on the right, uh, my former stomping grounds. But I don't feel like it was a particularly courageous stance. What's, what's hard to do is go against your own side and, um, and the most vocal voices on, on your own side. And I think there's, you know, I wrote about this in my last column. I think there's a quality of 
repressed guilt and anxiety about that guilt that manifests itself in these in these sort of serial capitulations. So I, I don't think I gave you a particularly good answer, um, but I don't think it's any one thing. But have you had conversations with, uh, I mean, you, you were just having lunch with somebody and talking about this, but have you had conversations with, say, a university president or a, a very high level administrator at some cultural institution? Have, has anybody ever said to you, Brett, this is the reason that I can't do this? Um, let me think. Um, no, it's more like, you know, we can't do that. Right. Or, uh, I mean, it's not like I, I don't go around saying, Hey, let's have some insanely provocative, uh, event. And, uh, what do you say? I mean, that's not, that's not what I'm in the business of, of, uh, doing, but I'll tell you one mindset that I think is, is, uh, problematic, which is what I will hear from people is that's not the hill I want to die on, right? And uh, you think, okay, well, there was um, you know, some incident takes place and you want to say, God, this is, seems to be kind of ugly or over the top, but that's not the hill I'm going to die on. Well, fine, you can not die on this little hill and not die on the other little hill, but eventually you have to choose your ground. Um, and I think what has happened in the culture is all of these incidents uh, of cancellation um, or, you know, uproar about uh, some uh, offense to current sensibilities, people will say to themselves, uh, yeah, that doesn't quite sit well with me, but uh, let's wait for something really serious to happen. And you know something? It's rare that something really serious happens. If you're not willing to die in the small hills, it turns out you're not going to be willing to die in the big hills, too. And so one of the things I've tried to do as a writer more and more is say, you know, I, I need to fight these smaller battles too, because uh, if I don't, then I will be ceding so much ground almost preemptively uh, that I won't, have a, I won't have any ground to stand on at all. So why do you think you're able to do that? Is it a matter of your just personal temperament, your psychology? Is it the fact that you are, you're not so far on the right, I wouldn't, I wouldn't call you a right winger by any stretch. You're conservative, I guess. What old, old school. Conservative. Well, I'm, a, I'm like a, a most, I mean, Tucker Carlson calls me a, a leftist, uh, uh, which amused me. Um, uh, to the right, I'm kind of a squish, right? I'm a moderate. Uh, um, to the left, I, I, I gather I'm somewhere between you know, a, a fascist and a Klansman yes, or something yes. like that. Well, that's, yeah, that's how we're, to the far we're going to ID you in, for this interview. But like, why do you think that you're able to have the stomach just to keep dying on these little hills? Is it just something about your personality or is it because you are not so deeply entrenched in one side or the other? I, I, I don't know the answer to that. I, um, I've, I've never minded, well, I do mind. That's not true. I do mind. Um, but I've never absolutely minded being hated. And it's important to me that the people who know me well like me, and I'm kind of indifferent or less sensitive to the way people who don't know me feel about me. Although, you know, that's variable and I can get upset about things. Uh, I famously or infamously or notoriously got upset about something which I've been regretting ever since. Um, uh, but I try to 
you know, I try to say to myself, well, what's the point of having a column if you're not willing to be unpopular? I mean, you know, the worst thing that can happen is I'll get fired and life will move on. And that's OK. Yeah. So uh, one another one of your more controversial columns was The Secrets of Jewish Genius. It was really um, about a, a book uh, by Norman Lebrecht. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. Genius and Anxiety. Again, I thought it was pretty clear what you were saying, um, but people got really upset. And in fact, I don't know if there was a retraction or that the Times ended up uh, adding a sort of uh, editor's note uh sort of making sure everybody knew that a study that you had cited was did not equal an endorsement. Um, I, you know, Jack Schaefer, uh, he read this column and he wrote in Politico about it, something that I think could just apply to everything that we're talking about, really. He wrote, the columnist's duty has always been to stimulate and infuriate his readers, thereby opening their minds to new vistas. But in the internet era, that's not always how it turns out. Readers are already overstimulated and showboating moves like Stevens in this column. He's calling your, uh, your, your, your rhetorical approach a, a showboating move. Grabbing the third rail of race science without first donning insulated gloves can end in disaster. Now, to me, that's how you should write a column. Like that, that's right. Well, I, I mean, I read, I read that piece by Jack and or Jake, whatever his name is, Schaefer. Uh, and, uh, I'm saying this quite deliberately. I, I think that's the kind of column that is written by someone who has never um, reached very high in his profession. Um, and, uh, and as a result, uh, writes with um, more personal animus uh, than uh, he realizes he's showing. Uh, I mean, I read, that, I read that particular piece of critique of my column with... Uh, complete contempt. And I'm saying that publicly because uh, I think he actually deserves it. Okay. But like, what about this idea that we, we just, we can't expect our readers to, to take it without donning insulated gloves? Like, well, you see, that's exactly the point, right? I mean, so what are we supposed to be doing in this business? Uh, uh, we're, 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 I mean, I wish I were a humorist and, and could just sort of write lighthearted columns. Um, some people do it extremely well. Alexandra Petri at the Washington Post is a, often a totally brilliant humorist. That's not what I'm doing. Um, the whole, I mean, I, I need to be careful here because there was an editor's note, um, and that is the judgment of the times, with which I respectfully disagree. Um, but... Uh, I particularly disagree with the fact that they erased a paragraph in the in the column, uh, leading readers to not be able to have access to uh, what I actually wrote. They deleted the subhead of the column, which was the, the original subhead was "It's not about IQ." So, headline: "Secret of Jewish Genius." Subhead: "It's not about IQ." That was also my subhead, right? My whole point was that the whole uh, genetic issue was to be uh, not not the secret, not the answer. Uh, if I were a racist, right, I would be emphasizing the genetic issue there. But again, that that was um, I mean, it's an interesting story, Megan, because so I cited a paper, but I didn't cite. Uh, 
I cited a paper that contains some kind of very commonplace data about Jewish intellectual achievement. You know, lots of Nobel Prizes, um, uh, uh, chess grandmasters, and uh, IQ uh, that's, I think, one standard deviation above the mean. Um, and I cited that paper not – the paper went on to make this kind of uh, plausible but ultimately mistaken hypothesis about Jewish intellectual performance, linking it to the possibility that it was kind of a, a compensatory factor with Jewish uh, – with, with diseases which are common to Ashkenazi Jews. And the reason I cited it is that I had um, seen that Steven Pinker had written a critical but very respectful review of the paper in the New Republic about 15 or 16 years ago. And just foolishly, I linked to the original data as opposed to Steven Pinker's, again, critical. Oh, okay, that was the lack of insulation in the gloves there, yes. So if I'd linked to Pinker, presumably I would have been okay. And if I'd linked to I don't know, Richard Dawkins or many other totally respectable people noting the same data, I probably would have been okay. What I did know is that one of the authors of that paper, after it was published, and it was a peer-reviewed paper, many years after it was published and shortly before his death, made some horrific racial com racist comments, which I was not aware of, do not endorse, you know, want nothing to do with, but it had nothing to do with, with my argument. And so there was this issue, um, my friend uh, Pamela Pereski talks about this issue of moral pollution, which is that because I had cited a paper by one guy who later turned out to be a racist, then that polluted the paper, then that therefore polluted the point, that that therefore polluted the column. And the next thing I knew, I was being described as a eugenicist, which is, you know, I mean, I'm the son of a Holocaust survivor. It was a pretty horrific accusation. Uh, but that's sort of the way in which it, it worked. And obviously in retrospect, I wish I hadn't written the column. I certainly wish I hadn't cited that particular, uh, uh, paper, but writing a column saying that the fact that Jews have been perpetual outsiders, may be a reason why they have quitted themselves with so much distinction in intellectual spheres. I don't think it's a terrible thing to say, right? I think it's a perfectly valid thing to say. And Richard Dawkins has said it. And all kinds of people have made roughly the same point. And I was inspired by this Lebrecht book, uh, which uh, I had read uh, in the preceding week, and uh, wanted to write about it. So, you know, as I'm, it's funny. As I am speaking to you, Megan, I'm thinking, gosh, I'm probably getting myself into uh, endless trouble just by revisiting the oh, episode. Well, okay. I, you can. You can blame me. No, no, no. I'm not but saying. Just, I'm not. I'm actually. I'm not saying delete this from. Uh, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm, not I'm saying that we've reached a point, and here's 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 kind of the essence. I know I'm going on a little too long here. We've reached a point where uh, looking back on that episode is itself, you know, uh, carries uh, risk, and that's bad in a free society. People ought to be yeah. able to talk. And I think what's happening in this country is everyone's afraid of speaking. Well, you say that you wish you had not written the column. Do you wish you had written a longer piece? Do you wish you had written the column in a different sort of intellectual and media climate? I can't believe that 
you wish you hadn't explored those ideas because that's why we're writing. Right. Look, that's what we do. There, 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 there are two points to make. I certainly wish I had written it more clearly. Um, and uh, every since you wrote a column, but you know, many years, you know how often finish a column, it's published, and then as you're reading it on the on the screen or on the page, you go, ah, I could have made this point a little bit differently, and that was usually just the reality of being uh, a columnist. You never express yourself quite perfectly. But 15 years ago, if you didn't express yourself quite perfectly, you shrugged, you moved on, you made a mental note. Now, if you don't express yourself perfectly, it is a potentially uh, reputation or profession annihilating event. Um, and that's, that's, uh, that's one issue. The second thing is I wrote the call that was around Hanukkah and there were a spate of uh, anti-Semitic uh, attacks at the time. And I'd sort of written it as a kind of a, in the spirit of Hanukkah, out of, you know, my own sense of uh, Jewish pride, I guess. Um, and, uh, you know, maybe I should have done something else. But again, I guess my point is, what I really wish is that I weren't writing in a climate where every column uh over, you know, every column is potentially a sword of Damocles over your head, um, both because uh, your your critics want to wield that sword, but your friends don't always want to necessarily want to shield your neck. Yeah. You know, and one of the things I really valued about being a columnist was that it it got me I, it got me sort of out of my own way. You just realize that you're not going to hit a home run every week. In fact, you know, you're lucky, you know, every once in a while, there's a great column. Uh, if you're lucky, most of them are like pretty good. Occasionally there's a real stinker and that's incredibly liberating just as a, as a person who is, you know, if, if you're charged with a certain amount of creative or intellectual output on a certain schedule, you've got to get over yourself and just accept that, you know, you're going to say something and then you're going to move on. And now it's like the opposite, it, as you just laid out. It's the, it's well, right. and, not and, liberating and, and, at all. And, you know, I, I mean, when I, when I started writing a weekly column for the Wall Street Journal, my editor said, hey, just remember, you know, if you, if you bat 230, 240, 250, you're in the Hall of Fame. You know, that is to say one out of every four or five columns, if they're good, you're going to be a great columnist. Um, I mean, maybe that's an argument for writing less. I don't know. But people, uh, you know, this is a, a certain feature of newspapers. And um, it's the job I have. And I try to write as well as I can every week. But yeah, not every column is a homer. And some columns, uh, I don't even, you know, uh, I don't even manage to connect to the ball. Uh, never mind, get on first. That's that's sort of a, a kind of uh, uh, a reality. I do think that every now and then I say something that readers of the New York Times really need to hear, and that maybe justifies. Me. Can you think of a recent example? What's the most recent example of something they needed to hear, even if they perhaps didn't want to hear? Well, I think the "woke me when it's over" column, uh, uh, along with the column I just wrote about uh, uh, Smith. I wrote a column a while back called "The Encroachment of the Unsayable." Um, and, um, I wrote a long piece in the, uh, book review, uh, in the, uh, in the Sunday review on the 1619 project. Um, and, uh, I'm proud of all of those. Uh, you know, and I try, a, a friend of mine is a very talented jazz pianist and he made the point, he said, look, you should be judged not on your best work 
but how good your worst work is. Um, and I thought that was a, an interesting way of thinking about any uh, any art form. That on, if on a bad day you still make a point, um, write fluently, um, have a great sentence or two. That's uh, that's not a that's not a bad baseline. Do you write once a week? the times is that the schedule well, now? well twice uh i was i started out at twice a week and then uh my conversation with gail collins turned out to be kind of like the sleeper hit of the times um and they liked it and they wanted to amp up the frequency and those those conversations we let's put it this way we work very hard to make it sound very casual um so uh it, it it's it consumes just as much time, if not more, than a uh, than a column does. So I, I have two bylines. Okay, with, and with yeah, when you do those with Gail Collins, are you like speaking in person back when we could do that, or are you DMing? Like, what's the format? No, it's it's all done over a, a, a Google Doc. Um, uh, I wish you know we we Gail is a fantastic human being, and just a lot of fun, very funny, and I wish we could just sit down and get a glass of wine and kind of, you know, hit record, but it's a slightly more manufactured process than, uh, than yeah. you could see. Yeah. On this idea of having to write too often, I always think that one of the things that's happening in terms of just the complete breakdown of any sort of coherent public discourse is that too many people are speaking all the time. There are just too many places for people to write. There are too many people with regular columns, daily columns. And I, I feel like 90% of what is out there to read on any given day is, is work generated by somebody who just had to think of something to say that day. I mean, I even felt that way as a weekly columnist. It's like, you know, occasionally you get those columns where it's like, I don't even know that I mean this. Like, it's not like, not like I don't mean it, but I certainly would not have bothered to say this if I didn't have to. No, I sort of wish that I could write twice a week, and sometimes I, uh, I twice I'll a week or twice a week, twice a week, not twice a month. Twice a week is a full call okay. because there's a lot of news that sometimes slips through your fingers that you'd really like to hit on. Um, the other aspect um, is that uh, you know I still have the foreign affairs columnist instinct. In and there are frequently times that I want to do a foreign column, but something big and pressing comes up on the domestic scene. And you really have to ask yourself, well, am I going to write a dull but worthy column about what just happened in Egypt? Or um, am I going to, uh, you know, uh, hit Trump over the head again or do something about Andrew Cuomo or whatever, right? Something that's current. And when you have two columns a week, you can say, okay, I'm going to write a column that nobody is going to read outside of a small community of foreign policy uh, aficionados, but makes a difference. Um, and then I'm going to do another column that's going to get very wide circulation. Uh, and I think one of the problems we have now is that those dull but worthy columns, especially on foreign topics, increasingly fall by the wayside because, like it or not, columnists are sort of addicted to the metrics game, too. Mm hmm. All right. Well, let's uh, shift a little bit here and talk about this wokeness phenomenon more generally. It's, it's such a great word, but I really do try not to use it because I feel like it's been weaponized by the by the right and Fox News at this point. You're a Gen Xer. You're the same generation as I am. You went to University of Chicago, which I, I up until at least recently was one of the few uh, big academic institutions that was sort of known to be pushing back on a lot of this stuff. What 
is your diagnosis uh, vis-a-vis how we got to this point? Why are we having these generational divides? Is this, are you in the Jonathan Haidt, uh, you know, coddling uh, school of thought about this or, or do you have other, other ideas? Well, look, uh, very much so in the coddling uh, uh, school. Um, but look, I also think that these things just kind of happen according to generational forces that, I mean, look, I'll give you an example. Like when you and I grew up, uh, crime was a huge issue. It was a huge issue. You could not, uh, you know, so much of Manhattan, as I remember it on my visits there as a kid, it was like, you can't go here, you can't go there. Uh, 2,000, more than 2,000 murders uh, uh, a year. There was a real sort of sense that, you know, this was a massive national problem. And then suddenly you had 20 years in which crime came down mainly on account of very proactive policing. There were other forces in play as well. I'm not I'm aware of them, but proactive policing had a lot to do. And you had a generation of uh, liberals who were basically grateful for the 20 years of Giuliani and Bloomberg in, uh, in, in, uh, in getting you know, the murder rate way down in, in New York. But my kids, uh, who are 17, 15, and 11, uh, have no memory of what it's like to be standing on a subway platform, uh, kind of looking around fearfully that there might be someone, you know, who, who could right. be a threat. The empty right? subway platform. That's something I talk about in my book. I mean, people don't, don't realize that once upon a time you would dread going down into the subway and having nobody be there. The, the, the rate of ridership was like, I don't want to say a fraction, but way, way, way less than it's been in the last decade or so. Yeah. And, and it's sort of useless for me to explain to uh, my kids, like, I mean, I, I can say uh, ad nauseum, it used to be really dangerous. Police should not be afraid to do their job, right? Um, they don't get that, and they are more aware of police abuses, and Lord knows there are police abuses, right? And uh, um, especially against uh, minority communities. Um, and so they they see it through a different lens, uh, and they they get a piece of the picture. Uh, but not the whole, not the whole picture. At least they don't experience it the same way. So why is it that we are now going through what I think of as just a kind of a rerun of the '60s? Um, and the '60s was sort of a rerun of past eras of generational, you know, turmoil and 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 uh, uh, upheaval. Uh, and I think there is something to this idea that one generation has to learn its own lessons so that the succeeding generation can forget those lessons so that the next generation can learn them all over again. I think there's something to that as well. Oh, that's so inefficient. Well, yeah, but I mean, people, do, I mean, it's, it's useless to describe the lessons of history to anyone. I mean, it's uh, uh, that whole Santayana quote is all, you know, about, you know, those who won't, you know, remember the past or, or condemn right. to it or whatever it is. Um, uh, Unfortunately, people don't remember the past because they didn't live it. And unless you've lived something, you don't really understand. But you say it's this is a retread of the 60s, but it's a retread plus Twitter, plus social media, which really changes the stakes. I mean, look, the 60s were had their own version of it in that, you know, for the first time, Americans were watching what war looked like. You know, the Vietnam War was not any 
more bloody minded uh, than the Second World War, but Americans were bombarded with pictures of, you know, uh, GIs doing bad things, you know, in the South Pacific or, or Europe, um, and, and so had a different picture. So in both cases, kind of the advent of technologies which provided a kind of concept of firsthand information. And I say concept of firsthand information because it, it, it's sort of simulacrum. Like it appears to be at firsthand, but isn't really. Uh, both played uh, a big part of it. The big difference in the, between the 60s and today is that in the 60s, people changed the way they dressed, right? Mm. Whereas here, everyone yeah. looks the same as we did Are 10 they're going years back ago. to we how we dressed in the 80s, which was uh, unfortunate. First time that, around. That's unfortunate, <laughs> yeah. Um, but, but I don't think that change has been, uh, I mean, the, you know, when you think about it, like America 19, before the Kennedy assassination, you know, the, the America of John Glenn and the Mercury 7, this kind of very square, patriotic, uh, uh, gosh, gosh darn it, uh, we're going to make it to the moon kind of America. I mean, there was only six years separating that America from Woodstock. It's it's kind of stunning. Um, and so there's six years, what now, seven years separating us from, as you said at the beginning of this podcast, 2014. Um, and just something profound has shifted in the culture. And I don't think it's uh, it's really for the good. Are there subjects that you would like to take on, but just don't seem worth it? Hills that are really not worth dying on. What about over the summer? Were you watching... Uh, were you watching things like the fetishization of Black Lives Matter? I'm going to go ahead and use that word. Were there things going on that you really wish you could sort of sink your teeth into that you just opted not to? Yeah, look, there's no question that I think, uh, um, well, I know I wrote about it. I mean, I wrote about what was happening in Baltimore and crime um, and remembering what happened to Baltimore after uh, Freddie Gray. I wrote about uh, Kenosha. It was, I think, more challenging in part because uh, Trump was weaponizing the issue. And, you know, my feelings about Trump, uh, like many of you know, are pretty much identical to most of my colleagues at the Times. Um, but uh, I, I felt an obligation to absolutely write about it and also to warn the Democrats that if you just let, um, uh, if you if you close your eyes to what's happening in the chop in uh, Seattle or what's going on in Portland, it's going to be an electoral disaster for you. Uh, in fact, if, uh, if we'd had a situation in the United States there, where imagine the pandemic had kind of uh, vanished after uh, May, you know, during the first decline, uh, uh, if, if Trump hadn't been saddled by the pandemic, I'm pretty sure he would have won the election and what happened over the summer would have, uh, would have helped him. What I'm absolutely determined to do, and I've made this clear uh, during the Biden years, is I am uh, going to be absolutely candid uh, uh, and, uh, I guess, more, um, I'm going to stick my chin out a little more um, now that uh, a Democrat is in power. I, 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 I'm going to be as unvarnished as I can. Jake Schaefer referred to race science being the third rail. Uh, I, I think the third rail is Woody Allen. And uh, I have. Uh, I, mean, I do not. I do not believe in race. Science. I, I know. I when people say race well, science, it's, like it's what does that even. It's one of those terms that doesn't mean anything. It's one of these terms that it's like to say race science sounds like 
like the Nazis, you know, of course I don't right. believe in yeah. race, I think that- you know, race science is my, is my, uh, are my relatives, my female relatives more susceptible to breast cancer because we're Ashkenazi Jews? Yes, we are. In that sense, there is that element there, but the whole term is, yeah, is no, I know. invidious like, uh, and loaded. It's a sort of, it's, it's even worse than the, uh, what the term white supremacy has become, which is, which is saying a lot, but, uh, so Woody Allen, uh, I have to just come out in a minute. I have become a Woody truther uh, of late. Uh, I, I have always uh, been extremely uh, skeptical of of Mia Farrow's uh, accusations for all kinds of reasons. And I've also like uh, seen dinner parties absolutely shut down in the middle when this topic comes up. It is really, really uh, hard to talk about and really triggering to people who otherwise uh, might be extremely heterodox in their thinking and, you know, see themselves as sort of <laughs> uh, e- even anti-woke of sorts. So um, what led you to write about Woody Allen I- at least twice? And what do you think of this HBO uh, documentary that's uh, playing I, right I, now? I haven't seen the HBO documentary. I know I should. Uh, I, I, I read the reviews of it and Probably the reason I haven't seen it is I don't want to grind my teeth into dust. Uh, uh, look, I'm not, as I wrote in both my columns, nobody knows what happened. Okay. But I did, you know, look at the Yale report and another report by the state of, uh, uh, the state of New York. Um, and uh, you have to ask pretty tough questions about the plausibility of the allegation. And you have to read, above all, Moses Farrow's uh, devastating account uh, of his upbringing. And when you've done that, reach your own conclusions um, before sort of jumping on this bandwagon. There's a tremendous amount of misinformation uh, that people commonly uh, uh, hold with, you know, like Woody Allen married his own daughter, stuff like that. And it's possible to have two ideas in your mind at once, that what Woody Allen did was distasteful um, uh, with respect to his relationship with his now wife of 25 or so years, okay? Um, And that's a perfectly fine view to have. It's another thing to say, oh, and by the way, because he did something distasteful, he's also a child predator. And I have felt when I speak to people who are on the opposite side of the issue, I, I will ask them, well, you know, did you read Moses Farrow's account? Uh, no. You know, are you aware that two contemporaneous examinations uh, uh, exonerated Allen, uh, Woody Allen? Uh, uh, no. So uh, he's, he's become this sort of figure of hate. And what matters to me, Megan, is not it. What matters to me is the principle of a presumption of innocence um, that ought to apply even in the public sphere, and that is wholly missing from this. And the idea that his memoir, which I found really engrossing, in part because I'm an aficionado of of Alan's films, um, uh, was uh, was dropped by Hachette. Um, I mean, I'm glad it was published, but... Well, a lot of that was because of Ronan Farrow. Well, with respect to Ronan Farrow, I would just commend people to Ben Smith. Uh, my colleague Ben Smith's uh, fantastic piece on the caliber of Ronan's. Yes, uh, and that was his opening column, right? As the uh, media. I don't think it was his opening one, but it was one of the early one. ones, and I thought it was. That was incredibly ballsy. And, and by the way, there was, you know, uh, I, I, I have not seen any defense of Ronan from that piece other than simply 
a defense by virtue of assertions. Um, and uh, um, if the New Yorker were still a serious publication, they would have taken Ben's column much more seriously. Than the New yeah, it seems like this this inability to separate like okay Woody Allen he you know he made a bunch of films where there's like a really inappropriate and in retrospect bizarre relationship between a middle-aged guy and a and a high school student a you know a teenage girl like that is a pathology okay arguably um being a pedophile uh and somebody who would sexually abuse a 7-year-old is a pathology, but they are two distinct ones. And I always find it remarkable that people who are otherwise pretty sophisticated thinkers don't seem to be able or willing to separate these two things. And it just goes back to what we were saying earlier about people not really being willing to read a column on the level in which it was intended. And this just seems to me like such a more sort of global, and I mean global in a sort of, you know, this is kind of like the 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 water that we're swimming in intellectually and culturally now. And it's just maddening, I find. No, I mean, look, it, it, this is a serious problem in that people reach conclusions about what they uh, ha have read before they, they, you know, from, from, from the beginning. I mean, I can't tell you the number of times I've encountered comments like, Stevens, an inveterate defender of the Trump administration. And you think, hmm, I don't know, I must have written 5,000 columns denouncing Trump every which way I can. Uh, and people will say this stuff. Um, why? Because they don't like my views about X, Y, and Z, which is entirely their right. That's 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 fine. Um, but at some point, some of the criticism, it, it reminds me of a famous uh, phrase by Wolfgang Pauli, who once put down one of his physics students by saying, you're not even wrong. It's like your point doesn't even rise to the level of, of wrongness. You're not even engaging uh, the issue that we're we're discussing. It's like asking a two-year-old what two plus two is, and she says banana. You know, it's not even in the category of math. Um, and a lot of a lot of what's public discourse is to me kind of in the you're not even wrong department. Um, uh, and that's a shame, by the way, because it, this is the other issue. The people who ought to be much more engaged in many of these debates, I think, have been pushed off stage partly because they have better things to do, as we were discussing earlier, partly because they think it's just not worth it. You know, uh, why should I uh, point out to uh, social influencer X that they've completely misread a piece? The next thing I know, it's going to be a problem for me at work, or it's going to be talked about at, you know, my kid's school, and uh, that's not what I need. So this is like in the way that in Gresham's law, you know, economic model that, that bad money uh, uh, chases out good money. Um, bad ideas and bad voices are chasing out good ideas and good voices. So what do you think of the Substack phenomenon? We have prominent thinkers, people who are controversial, who are used to being able to kind of say what they want and have people understand it, leaving the big, the big media institutions, getting subscribers, going out on Substack. Have you ever thought about doing that? Or do you go into the times? Do you physically walk into the building every day? Well, I haven't been for almost okay. a year just because it's been closed, but usually I go in. Um, I mean, not every day, but at least once or twice a week. Um, what do I think about the Substack phenomenon? I think it, 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 it's a sign that media is failing because when you have really talented voices who are moving to Substack, 
Uh, I mean, someone at the level of Andrew Sullivan, who, you know, agree or disagree, and I've disagreed with him in all kinds of ways, is a phenomenally talented polemicist and thinker. Um, when he's on Substack, there is a problem with, uh, with the media. Um, and eventually, um, I mean, it's a little bit like the exile of, um, of European intellectuals who fled, you know, fascist regimes uh, in the 30s and, and 40s. Uh, these are the guys who end up, uh, you know, building uh, America. It's atomic bomb, right? It's, 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 it's not going to go well for the, for the establishment institutions, which are kicking these voices out. Um, I mean, I just find one magazine after another to be, you know, my criticism isn't so much that they're, you know, super left wing. I'm always up for a good left wing provocation. It's that they're tedious. I mean, New York Magazine is tedious. It is boring to read. Um, a lot of what passes for mainstream publications, you just kind of think, oh, I think I know what you're about to say. And I stop reading. Um, and the fact that uh, a platform like Substack is, is um, uh, appealing to uh, and giving voice to, like, really some of the most talented writers uh, around uh, says something. Now, whether it's a viable business um, model, I don't know. Uh, uh, maybe, maybe not. Um, but it is a sign of the sickness of the culture. Is this where you thought you would be? Did you start out your career wanting to be an opinion expresser, holder? <laughs> or did you want to be yeah, more I'll tell you. Uh no, I was always an, I was always full of myself with opinions, and I uh, my my dad actually, although he was a businessman, he had a sort of sideline. He wrote a weekly column in our uh, in our for our newspaper in Mexico City. That's where I grew up. So I kind of was aware of opinion writing, and I started a uh, I started a um, rabble rousing st alternative student newspaper in high school. So um, people who knew me when you know when I was. 15 or 16 will say, oh, I'm, I'm not the least bit surprised that you do what you do. You grew up in Mexico City. Just so people are clear, you are an American. You're, your parents are American, right? So you. Well, my father was, had both nationalities. Okay. You were living uh, a sort of expatriate yeah. kind of uh, life. So were you like the uh, Alex P. Keaton of your school? Were you a known conservative? Uh, Sort of. I was a rabble rouser. I mean, I had unorthodox views. In fact, I was looking at some copies of my old student paper, and I wrote one paper denouncing the Western-centric curriculum of my of my boarding school. Oh, um, you fit in now perfectly. <laughs> so uh, I, I've sort of moved away from that. Um, uh, but uh, you know where I. It kind of happened in part at the University of Chicago, and not because I was a young conservative there. It's that the mindset of the place kind of lead, moves you in the direction of a conservative sensibility. Um, uh, although, I mean, that's not universally true. Plenty of Marxists and, um, and lefties and progressives come out of U Chicago, too. But at least that's the way it worked out for me. Um, you know, my mom describes herself as a conservative socialist. Uh, my father was kind of a moderate Republican, I guess. Um, growing up in Mexico made me more pro-American than I probably otherwise would have been, just because stuff that a lot of Americans take for granted um, seem fairly special when you're coming from Mexico City, like being able to drink water out of the tap unless you're in Flint, Michigan. Um, uh, uh, 
uh, cops that, you know, if you get a ticket, you just pay the ticket, you don't pay a bribe. Um, all those things made me realize as a child that the U.S. was, um, you know, a, a, a special country and made me probably more rah-rah pro-American than I otherwise would have been. Yeah. Well, this has been a great conversation. I'm really, I'm really happy to finally be able to talk with you at length. I guess just my last question is, what do you say to young people who say to you, I want to be like you, I want to have opinions, I have opinions, I want to express them. What's the best way of doing it? I mean, frankly, I have students say to me, you know, you're sitting here teaching us how to do what you do and you're pontificating about how you have to take intellectual risks and, you know, give zero fucks and all of this. But that's easy for you to say because you're not going to be canceled right out of the gate. I mean, we grew up with the great luxury of not having Twitter on our tails all the time. So I think the more I've thought about it and look, you know, I certainly haven't conducted myself perfectly and you know, done things I regret. But one thing I've, I, I I feel more strongly about now is um, look, all of your enemies on Twitter or social media, they're like the ghosts in Pac-Man, right? And, <laughs> the kids won't get that reference, but okay. Yes. Uh, well, I, I, I grew up. It's just, it's just an attack of, of, of it's, it's virtual. Um, and yes, there are people who have suffered grievous professional consequences uh, on, on that account. That's a real uh, factor, but it's still a free country. I mean, we were talking about Substack just now. And if this goes on much longer, the, the so-called cancel culture, right? Um, the only people who are going to wind up being canceled are the cancelers. Because everyone else, if they're not cowed, um, they are going to move on to uh, greener pastures where they're going to be able to say exactly what they want. So, you know, this is a point that I've made uh, in many contexts, privately and publicly, which is that the real threat that cancel culture poses ultimately isn't to the Brett Stevenses or Megan Doms of the world who have an unorthodox opinion on X or Y, right? It's to the institutions which allow it to happen because they're becoming conformists, they're becoming boring, they're driving talent. Uh, out there, out the door, um, and over the long term, I don't think that's that serves them uh, at all. Uh, even if it seems like a smart thing to do under the pressure of one controversy or or uh, or another, so long as we have a society in which there's a critical mass of believers in the First Amendment and what it stands for and the spirit it represents uh, in both the public and private sphere, then. Cancel culture is is uh, ultimately self-annihilatory. And that's what I would say to those students of yours, which is even if you get canceled by people on Twitter or by some establishment uh, institution, it doesn't mean you're going to be silenced because those people who are attacking you are just the ghosts in Pac-Man and you can just put two more quarters into the slot and play another game. <laughs> A quarter? What's that? A coin? <laughs> Yes, what? there were these sort of government-issued tokens mm. uh, made of so like metal. a non-fungible uh, token. It's not. It's an actual token. Well, it is an actual token. Brett, thank you so much for speaking with me, and thanks for continuing to stick your neck out and sticking to where you are. And all right, well, if I get yeah. fired for this podcast, you're going to have to give me a job. I, I type. Okay. 
uh, a good seven. All right. I, I pay extremely so. well. I also like the idea of the cows. The, the the people who are cowed are cows, but the people who are not cowed are in greener pastures. So the cows don't have any green grass to eat. I think we could work on that. I like that. I think that there's you're there's something, something there. All right. All right, Brett. Thank you so much. Thanks, Megan. That was my interview with New York Times opinion columnist Brett Stevens. He's been at the Times since 2017, and before that was a foreign affairs columnist at the Wall Street Journal, where he won a Pulitzer Prize in 2013. He has also been editor-in-chief of the Jerusalem Post and was raised in Mexico City. You've been listening to The Unspeakable Podcast. You can subscribe on Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, all the usual places. If you'd like to support the show, please visit the Patreon page. That's patreon.com slash the unspeakable. Like I said at the beginning, this is a great time to join because the show now offers merchandise under the official slogan, Nuanced AF. If you join the Patreon now at the $10 a month level or higher, you'll get a free mug or $10 off the other items. You can go to the website at theunspeakablepodcast.com and visit the Nuance store and order from there. If you know how nuanced you are, it's time to let the world know. In the meantime, come back next week for another super nuanced guest. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Hi, I'm Frank. I don't like change. And I just saw a billboard for this new BJ's Wholesale Club talking about how you could pay as little as two cents a gallon for gas. Look, when gas prices are this low, we can't complain about gas prices being too high. No, sir. I wouldn't join BJ's Wholesale Club. Hey, thanks, Frank. But if you do want to sign up now to get a $40 BJ's digital gift card, join the new BJ's Wholesale Club, opening soon in Ross Township. Visit BJ's.com slash Ross Township or the BJ's Membership Center at the Block Northway. Offer valid for a limited time. Addiction is a disease that impacts all of us. Whether you, your neighbor, friend, or family member is struggling, everyone feels the pain of addiction. Recovery Centers of America, Monroeville, wants you to know that addiction treatment works and recovery is possible. Call 1-888-RECOVERY-NOW for help for yourself or a loved one. Recovery Centers of America have helped thousands of patients across the United States and here in Western Pennsylvania start a better, healthier way of life through their evidence-based in patient and outpatient treatment programs. The caring team of physicians and clinicians at Recovery Centers of America see their patients as so much more than their addiction and are deeply committed to providing expert care with heart. Recovery Centers of America knows that every day in active addiction is a day in isolation, which is why they admit new patients 24-7 year-round. Don't wait. Make the call that can change everything. Call 1-888-RECOVERY-NOW.